I really feel like the time is now. Now is time for our women to be front and center, to take the lead, and to show the world what an Assyrian woman can do. Syrian podcast family, John in Chicago here with episode 122. I first learned of our guest, Autor Sargon, early last year when I found out she won an election for Lincolnwood Village trustee. I'd go on to find out that not only did she win the most votes on the Lincolnwood ballot, but she is the first Assyrian to be elected in Lincolnwood, which has a sizable population of Assyrians in that village for decades. She's also the first Assyrian woman to be elected to office in the entire state of Illinois. Her humble beginnings and eagerness to serve not only her Assyrian community, but her community at large, made for quite a fascinating story. For our listening family across the world, be it in Europe, Iraq, Australia, or elsewhere, even though the story is set in the United States, it pertains to you too. We all partake in the electoral process one way or the other, and perhaps this will provide some inspiration and education as to why your voice matters. Autor makes it easy for you to want to root for her no matter what path she chooses, and I hope this episode helps you realize why. I hope this inspires more Assyrian women to be involved in groups regardless of politics, and that Assyrian men make room without automatically assuming it reduces them in some type of way. Finally, I hope this sparks an entire generation in the U.S. and abroad to become more active and responsible for what goes on in their daily life and how Assyrians can gain better and more fair representation wherever they may reside. Don't be alarmed at the start of the episode. Autor and I were having a conversation about different ways her name gets pronounced, uh, and that's where we pick things up. Assyrian podcast programming is made possible by Tony Kalagarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. It's, it's actually, there's a funny story behind it, which I'll, I'll share really quickly, but that's how I got a yeah, childhood nickname uh, growing up. It, uh, some of my childhood friends call me Otter uh, because once they were at my house and they heard my parents call me Otter, Otter, Otter. They're like, wait a second, are we saying your name wrong? I'm like, well, yes, but a tour is fine. And so they actually were, were like, okay, well, we want to say it the right way. So I'm like, okay, Otter. And they're like, Otter, Otter. <laughs> and that's kind of how my nickname came around. Uh, Author, you have a ton of day-to-day -day responsibility. Uh, you wear many hats. Can you tell anyone not familiar with what you do, especially as it pertains to a village uh, board member, uh, what you do exactly? Sure. But um, first, can I ask you how much time I have to answer that question? Because... You have all morning. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, as a trustee um, in the village of Lincolnwood, I have a lot of uh, duties and responsibilities and uh, the village trustees set the policy for the community and I can give some examples. We pass an annual uh, budget every year, so we manage revenue and debt. 
we make decisions pertaining to infrastructure updates and stormwater management. So dealing with the sewers and how our village gets water. Um, we deal with um, making decisions for our fire and police departments, uh, decisions regarding community development, economic development. Uh, we have a large parks and recreation board here. So um, we also make decisions regarding our parks department. And um, as a village trustee, I also serve um, as the liaison to two of our boards and commissions. One is the parks and recreation board. And the second is the economic development commission. And I also serve on two committees for the village. One is a long range planning committee and the other is the committee on ordinances, rules and buildings. And yes, it is as exciting as it sounds. So those take lots of time and planning and researching. We get board packets twice a month that can range from like 400 to 1000 pages with a few days in between a prep for board meetings and make you know, very important decisions on behalf of our community. But in addition to that, John, we also, as village trustees, volunteer with the community for events. We attend openings for different businesses and centers. And, um, you know, the list goes on and on. And like I said, that sounds like a handful. Um, that has to be a full-time job, obviously, right? Between all the things you have to read and all the subcommittee meetings and everything. Oh, yeah. And I want to add, I'm actually in the process of working with our village and other trustees to um, establish a environmental and energy commission, which is really exciting. Um, so it's really never ending. And I always wonder um, how people can manage their time because I know that for me, it's a full-time job and I put in over 40 hours a week on my work at the village, but I'm very proud of it. And I'm very honored to serve my community. Going back a little bit now, you earned your bachelor's degree in political science from University of Illinois uh, and your master's in public policy and administration from Northwestern University, uh, also in Illinois and Evanston. Uh, it seems you knew exactly what path you wanted to take by the time you entered college. Uh, so I want to begin with where it all started. Uh, you mentioned earlier this year, as a matter of fact, in a ASA of Chicago virtual graduation video, uh, that your late grandmother uh, bestowed a lot of knowledge upon you, especially when it came to an individual's reputation and their life's work. Uh, how did your grandma and her words carve out your path to where you are today? Sure. So I'll start with the first question. And um, I know it seems on paper that I had this clear path, right? Political science major, public policy, but it really wasn't that um, easy for me. I know uh, growing up that I was always interested in government and student government. That was an area that um, I always volunteered and worked with in my schools and communities. And um, I thought that was really interesting. And I know that our viewers can't necessarily see it, but I'm wearing a sweater. It's a throwback for what you young folk call it today, but it's a sweater from one of the first um, Assyrian student organizations I was a part of founding. And, and this sweater is 20 years old. I was 16 when we established this organization. And so um, I knew for a fact that I love volunteering, contributing to my community. And so I liked government. And so naturally it felt like poli-sci was the natural route for me. And then in between, there was some time where I thought about kind of where my path would go. And so um, I think the MPPA degree policy was something that kind of, I always felt passionate about public service. So that was kind of another natural path for me. But the second question regarding my grandmother, yeah, talk about my grandma at that ASA graduation because she inspired me and I hope to really inspire the future generation. 
And I always thought of her as a true pioneer and like a feminist before her time. And I think about the life she lived and the obstacles that she had to overcome, um, like a lot of women of her time. And I'm just so amazed by her. And she continues to serve as like a motivation for me. She was such a strong figure because both of my parents worked. My father worked two jobs. My mother worked another full-time job. So she's the one who really raised my sisters and I, and I'm, I'm one of four girls. So she imparted a lot of knowledge um, to my sisters and I, and she would talk about reputation a lot. And being young, I didn't really process or really understand what she meant by that. But she would always say, Brati, you know, you build, you build, you know, you do the right things. And one small thing can really tarnish your reputation. I really took that with me. And now it continues to inspire me. And there are some times where I have to make difficult decisions. And um, there are controversial issues that I have to think about. And I think she continues to serve as a guide in my life because I think of her and I think about those values that she bestowed in me at a young age. And so she continues to really influence my life today. That is truly a wonderful story. Uh, you mentioned your parents as well, uh, both having full plates with jobs and a really busy, tight-packed schedule, but they also made time for the Assyrian community. Did that ever make you curious, especially at a younger age, as to why they gave so much of their time versus just kind of getting home and relaxing on weekends? Uh, or was it more along the lines of a naturally understood and ingrained sense of duty to the Assyrian community? I think it was more naturally understood and ingrained sense of duty uh, for the Syrian community. And I never really questioned growing up why my parents chose to dedicate that time. It was just a part of our normal schedule. They worked, but, you know, we attended church. We volunteered at church. I taught how to read and write in Assyrian, which was really a fun time for me because I was able to share the knowledge that I learned from my churches and community growing up back to the community. We attended humanitarian events for Assyrians. We attended political events. I remember as a teenager, John, our parents took us to a political event at the Assyrian Social Club, and it was actually for a candidate who eventually became our governor, and that would be Governor Rad Blagojevich. And I remember being really young and thinking, wow, this is really extraordinary that this candidate for governor is here and trying to get the support of the Assyrian community. And I think all of those different experiences really became a part of who I am. And I um, impart, try to impart those in my children as well. You truly never lived a life of indifference. It was always being active and, and taking a stance somewhere at some point. And I, I think that's wonderful. Rod Blagojevich is a name I, I almost kind of forget sometimes, but I do remember his campaign. And I was much younger at the time. I remember when he was first running uh, him mentioning his Lithuanian roots, and uh, he had a mix of something else in there, too, in the advertising. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he would do the due diligence to reach out to our community and no doubt uh, some other ones. But that's that's a fun story. It's a name you don't hear too often anymore in Illinois. No. Yeah. Uh, going back to your college years now, uh, you mentioned uh, poli-sci being the major. Was that always the logical choice? Or did you struggle with that decision at times and perhaps wanted to divert to something completely different? It's funny that you asked that because I think it was a logical choice for me because, I, as I mentioned, I was always interested in government and, and uh, community service and giving back. But also growing up, I was 
interested in um, ancient history and archaeology. And so secretly, some people who are close to me, it's one of those things where they ask a difficult question at a bridal shower or a baby shower, like, what did Atur want to be when she grow up, grow, grows up? And so I wanted to be an archaeologist. And so that's kind of like the um, long running joke with some close family members and um, close friends. I always mention this previous guest I, I got to interview, uh, Rebel Bachmul, a very talented artist. And actually, he was uh, one of the founding members of this Assyrian Student Union with me those, all those years ago. There you go. It comes full circle. I, I wanted to mention that when I was talking to him about his art and what he wanted to do when he was younger, he mentioned he wanted to be a paleontologist. <laughs> and so did I. That was the first thing I ever remembered wanting to be. And I shared this story to Instagram yesterday about them finding... Uh, fossilized human footprints from 100,000 years ago in New Mexico. And of wow. course, he reacted to it. And so we just had a little nerd out moment there. So it's, it's yeah. very awesome, actually, that you wanted to be an archaeologist at one point, because that was probably, for me, neck and neck right up there with being a paleontologist at, at a young age. And I think it's interesting. I wonder why we as Assyrians choose not to pursue those fields, because I don't know, maybe growing up during my time, I think there were like three or four professions that Assyrian families would say, okay, you need to either be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And then the rest of it is just, it didn't make sense. I think um, Pete and I, my husband, Peter and I joke about it all the time. We don't care what our kids want to do as long as they're happy and as long as they can make a living for themselves. But if my daughter said she wanted to be an archaeologist, I would be very excited and, and support her. Um, so did you ever I, get that, uh, that. that pressure from your parents to be one of the, the magic three, or did they kind of just let you do your own thing? They kind of let me do my own thing, but I think growing up in the Assyrian community, it's just one of those known and accepted things that you didn't make it unless you're one of those three things, unfortunately, which I think that's changing now for our, for the newer generations. It's really exciting. I mean, the Assyrian podcast in itself is a huge example of art talent uh, from our young community of doing things that are outside of the scope of what we're typically used to and flourishing and doing an extraordinary job. So thank you, John, and to all the Assyrian podcast journalists and members for doing what they're doing. Well, thank you. What was life immediately like after graduating from U of I? Uh, what were you doing at the time? And was it related to politics at all? So that's a really good question, John. And there were two things kind of immediately after graduating from U of I that stand out for me. The first is at that time I considered law school, but before applying to law school, I thought it'd be helpful for me to get some real life experience and maybe an internship or work at a firm to see if this is truly what I wanted to do. And for many Assyrian families, uh, families of immigrants who come to this country, we don't necessarily have those connections to call a friend or an uncle who has a, a law firm or something that they can give you this part-time job to get that experience. But luckily, my dad had a friend of a friend who owned a law firm in the loop, and he was willing to meet with me. And so I interviewed for a job, and he said, you know, it's where we'd love to give you a job, but unfortunately, we're just not hiring at this time. And so I told him, you know what? I'll work for free. Just hire me on and give me a chance. And I think the experience in itself will be enough payment. And so I think he was really taken aback and he was like, well, okay. So they hired me on. And I want to say about three weeks in, they ended up hiring me on full time, um, which was really nice because I spent many years working there. And I think what I gained and what was so important from that job was that I did not want to practice law or go to law school. That's, I think, what I learned most. And I think it was very important for me to take that kind of 
uh, detour and not just go straight from undergrad to law school or pursue education. What I loved most about the job was that my boss at the time um, worked in politics in the past. And so he was an alderman on the north side of Chicago, and he actually served as um, assistant superintendent to the Chicago police under Jane Byrne when she was mayor. And he had a lot of friends in the political world. So we attended a lot of political events, our firm did. And so um, I enjoyed that. But I also, it forced me to really think about, okay, I'll sort of like, what do you want to do? And so I chose to pursue my passion in um, public service. And that's kind of how I ended up applying for the MPPA program at Northwestern. But the second thing, John, that I was doing kind of immediately after undergrad was some of my friends from U of I, Assyrian friends, connected me with a group here in Chicago after we graduated. And we established the Assyrian Chaldean Syriac student movement. And why that's truly significant is, of course, it was the work that I love to do, right? To serve my community and to work with other Assyrians. But I also met my husband there. And so uh, my husband, Peter, and I met at ACSSM that year. I think we were right around like 22 or 23 years old. So I think those are pretty significant things that kind of happened immediately after I graduated from U of I. Were there a ton of Assyrians at U of I at the time? Clearly mm -hmm. enough for a club, but... Uh... Not a ton, but enough of us that... Um, we found each other, John, somehow in that university in the middle of cornfields, like we found one another and we were able to connect because, I mean, I was one of the few women, but also there weren't that many Assyrians that were, were away at college at that time. And I remember it was a huge ordeal for me to be able to convince and get my parents on board for me to go away. I was the first woman in my family to go to college. I was the first woman in my family to go away for college. And so those were huge obstacles for me. But I did have an older cousin who spoke to my parents who went to U of I. And he said he really took it on himself to explain to them. And um, I think he was a huge impact in that decision. But when we were there, we somehow found one another. And I remember my sophomore year my father called me and I said, Brati, you know, one of my best friends growing up, he has a couple of daughters, you know, heading to U of I, would you be willing to meet with them and, you know, uh, introduce them to the school and get to know each other? And then we connected and they're still good friends of mine now. They stood up at my wedding and, you know, um, we somehow find each other. And even though we are assimilated to a certain extent at a university where we're each pursuing our passions and different kind of subject areas, I think we connect on the fact that we're Assyrian. And, you know, we all, I remember we would try to cook Assyrian dishes and, you know, drink chai. And that sense of familiarity is always um, a safety net for us. So it was nice to find that handful of Assyrians there. And I'm not sure if the graduate program at Northwestern was a, uh, a commuter program or if you were on campus, but did you find any Assyrians on Northwestern's campus? Well, we know that U of I is a selective school. Northwestern is even more selective. So it's got a, a smaller student body. It might be a little bit tougher to do that. Yeah, I didn't find any Assyrians while I was there, especially in my program. My husband did go to Northwestern for undergrad, so we missed each other. And after I graduated, there was an Assyrian gentleman who works in municipal government who connected with me after the fact. But what was interesting is that I was actually in a class with a professor and always in the first class, you just go around and you say your name and a few things uh, and introduce yourself. And I remember saying, hi, I'm Atar Sargon. And, you know, I started to introduce myself and he said, stop. He said, Sargon, like King Sargon. And then he starts to go off on this like five minute diatribe about like Assyrians. Do you all know who Assyrians are? Assyrians are this and that. And I was so 
taken aback, but impressed and happy, just kind of like, wow, someone knows who Assyrians are at Northwestern. I know that sounds almost foolish to a certain extent, but it's also nice when, when people know who Assyrians are. And I remember like the rest of my class looking at me and like, wow, like, oh, she's Assyrian, what's that? And I think that was um, really interesting, but I didn't have any other Assyrians like at that time in my program. That's really where the tuition money goes for a place like Northwestern. You get the professor that understands Assyria and, oh, and right. the history behind it, right? Yeah. No, I kid. You mentioned uh, your husband, Peter, meeting him in college and the kids. Uh, I normally don't even really ask about personal relationships and family and everything like that, but please tell us more about that. How did you guys specifically meet? Uh, when did you get married? To fill us in about that. Sure. So Peter and I met at ACSSM. It was right after I graduated from U of I and um, we were 22. We started dating at the time and eventually got married. We moved downtown to be closer to, you know, our jobs and, and the action. My husband, Peter, is a physician, so he's very busy. And actually, John, today is our 11-year wedding anniversary. We're celebrating that today. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. And he's really one in a million and has been like a constant sense of support for me, especially when I ran and I was uh, campaigning. I wasn't um, able to really fully commit without knowing that he was behind me and supported me 100% because that meant that on evenings when he came home from a long day of work and I had to run out to campaign, he was getting dinner ready and getting the kids ready for bed and homework and extracurriculars. And we have two, two young kids. Um, our daughter, Sophie, is seven and our son, Raman, is five. And really, they are my heart and soul. And they inspire me and motivate me every day to make this world a better place. And they're so interesting and fun, John. They are huge Star Wars fans. They know like deep character lines like we play this game at home and i'm sorry if i'm going like way too off on a tangent here but not at all we play this game at home where you have to guess the star wars character <laughs> and before i always beat them because i know a lot of star wars characters right but now they've done so much so much research through reading in books and watching all of the shows like the clone wars and rebels and all these other ones where they ask me questions i have no idea who they're describing. They stump me all the time. And they're very exciting and interesting, unique individuals. They, like I said, they inspire me every single day. And they they absorb a lot, John. Like they hear Peter and I speaking. And I mean, if you ask my daughter, Sophie, about the election, I'm sure she'd have a lot to say about the presidential election. And like I said, um, I'm very blessed. And I thank God every day for my husband, my kids, my family. I don't know if I can express my appreciation enough that you've bestowed upon them the, the nerddom of Star Wars, which I am also a part of. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. And um, I remember one of my first real jobs, I worked at a movie theater. And the thing I liked about it most was that during my breaks, I could sit in and watch like movies as they were coming out. And so when I was 15 or 16, I think it'd have to be 16, but Star Wars episode one was out. And I know for like hardcore Star Wars people, that's like not their favorite movie. But for me, it has a special place because it was one of those movies that I watched like over and over again. And it was like a fun time in my life, my first job working at a movie theater. So yeah, I had to pass that down to them for sure. And you mentioned your kids' names, Raman and uh, Sophie, was it? Yeah, Sophie. Uh, how did those names come to be? Because one of them is obviously a little more neutral and the other one's very yeah. Assyrian. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so funny because with Sophie, we had a list of names that we liked. And so let me go back. Um, my name is Altor Sargon, right? And I'm one of four girls. My oldest sister is Ninueh. I'm Altor, Ramslina, and Ashtar. So we all have very beautiful Assyrian names. And I marry my husband, Peter. 
got the you know American name and Sargon. So now not only am I Altur, but I'm Altur Sargon, which I love. And there's no question as to oh, is she could she be a Syrian? Everyone knows I'm a Syrian, right? So with with Sophie, we just wrote down a list of names that we liked, and we we didn't know we didn't pick a name for her necessarily. And I remember when I went into labor, Peter was like, we didn't pick a name. And I was like, oh my god! And so. We looked to the right and there was a picture of a, a giraffe. And one of the first toys we bought Sophie was this Sophie la giraffe. It's like a chewing toy. It's like a teething toy. I said chewing toy. Oh my God. But it's a teething toy. And so um, it was one of the first toys we bought her. And I just took it as like a sign that, you know, I saw this giraffe and the teething toy. And so Sophie um, stuck with us. And for my son, Raman, we always knew, we were, well, I always knew we were going to name him Raman. It's after my late father-in-law. Raman Sargon. So it was to honor his memory. That's very nice. Um, you end up, or yeah, the vice president of the Lincolnwood PTA, that's Parent Teacher Association. Uh, is that decided by votes or are you chosen some other way? So there is a nominating committee for the PTA and the nominating committee solicits resumes for different positions on the board. They end up making a recommendation to the general membership and then the general membership votes. And so it's kind of like a two prong process where uh, the nominated committee recommends people, but then the general membership votes you in. And then you grew up partly in Lincolnwood, if I'm not mistaken. Is this where you moved later on in life? This is where I moved later on in life. So we grew up in Albany Park and we moved to Lincolnwood when I was 15. So uh, growing up, I went to Chicago public schools, uh, my grade school and first high school, uh, my grade school is Walt Disney School. And my first high school is Roosevelt High School in Albany Park. And I've always had the feeling that PTA involvement is way more stressful than most people would imagine. <laughs> Am I wrong in assuming that or can it be quite the handful? You know what, John, I remember when the PTA president approached me and she was like, we'd love for you to apply and consider running. And the first thing I thought of, and I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but it's called Bad Moms. Yes. And so the storyline for those of you who haven't seen it is basically um, these PTA moms who are these like crazy type A moms. And so that I think is like the stereotypical like perception of like a PTA mom or a PTA member. But that really wasn't the experience I had. It wasn't stressful at all. I actually enjoyed it so much. And a lot of the work that we did was part of kind of the, the stuff that I typically enjoy. And so contributing to our student population, assisting our teachers, um, same with our parents. And every year, one of the big events that the Lincolnwood PTA does is we host our book fair. And for anyone growing up who walked into a book fair with an envelope of money and, you know, got to pick out their books, that was always an exciting time for me growing up. And so I know how much kids love the book fair. And that's something that even um, now I continue to volunteer and participate in every year. So for me, no, it wasn't stressful. I really enjoyed it. And I had a lot of fun working with the PTA. That makes me really happy that book fairs are still a thing because that's the number one thing I looked forward to in school was Scholastic Book Fair. Same with me, John. <laughs> yeah. uh, another former Assyrian podcast guest and all-around great guy, Joe Snell, uh, yes. featured you in an article for the Assyrian Journal in March of 2019, uh, which highlighted a career-changing, if not life-changing encounter for you. Uh, just to paint a picture, it's September of 2017, you're attending a breakfast featuring Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky. Uh, tell us what Jan said that stuck with you at that breakfast. 
Yeah, thanks, John. So Congressman Schakowsky um, is a very inspirational person. And she talked about her life and how she got involved in, in activism. And I thought it was a really interesting story. She talked about being a mother and going through the grocery store and noticing with some friends that there weren't expiration dates. And so kind of her activism stemmed from wanting to bring to light unsafe food practices in the food industry. And so it just kind of came naturally, you know, having these questions, trying to find answers. And um, she shared that story and it really resonated with me. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. You know, you don't think that something like that would be a pivotal point in someone's life, but it was for her. And I think the story really touched me. But also what I found really um, inspirational about the event is that I was surrounded by a group of Assyrian women who were all experts in fields, you know, whether it was the medical field or law or education or nonprofit. And they really blew me away. We each went around and shared our stories. And what Congresswoman Schakowsky said is she said, I encourage all of you, all of you at this table to consider running for public office. And for me, I think it was the first time where I thought that maybe, maybe I could do it. And so, yeah, like I said, I think it was a really kind of pivotal time. And it just it was something that struck me for the first time that maybe I could do this. And Congresswoman Schakowsky ultimately did convince you to run for local office and mentored you along the way. But can you take us behind the curtain? What was it like, you know, gleaning knowledge from a sitting member of Congress who is not only a woman, but has also worked with Assyrians on more than one occasion. Sure. Yeah, John. I mean, it was really an honor to be able to get advice and guidance from such a respected um, person like Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky. And her team was very helpful and accessible uh, during my campaign. I could pick up the phone and ask for help. And she was with me throughout the entire process. And she's also very knowledgeable about the Assyrian community, has been active in the Assyrian community. And I think she understood why it was so important for me and for our community to have representation. And so I think that was a piece of it too. I remember the day after I was elected, she was in DC and she called me and she and I had a nice conversation and she said, I knew you could do it. And I said, well, thank you for all your support. And it was really with her support that I was able to overcome a lot of the obstacles that were hurled my way. But also I want to add that she continues to stay a, an important person in my life and mentor me. And um, this year I was able to co-host uh, her 19th annual women's power lunch and the guests of honor included governor from New Mexico, Michelle Grisham and the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot and Dr. Jill Biden. And I was able to share this platform with over a thousand guests and talk about being an Assyrian American elected. And I think that's really huge. And I thank her for that. And I was able to, you know, really share about my experiences in a Syrian elected, but I, I think that she was really able to help me and she continues to help me today. And then in 29, uh, you're running for Lincolnwood Board of Trustees position. Was there anything particularly stressful about this election or did this mentorship with the Congresswoman, your education and life experience kind of overall prepare you for all the potential missteps? So I think my education, life experience, and mentorship really prepared me for the election. In particular, I was in the process of going through training during my election uh, with an organization called Illinois Women's Institute for Leadership. And the organization um, helps women run, democratic women, but um, the training includes training on fundraising, media training, campaigning, data collection. And so it was like real time training that I was able to apply to my campaign. And even though I felt prepared because 
it takes a lot of consideration. I think I didn't realize like how contentious a local election could be. There were certain things that were said that were pretty offensive that, you know, I had to really stay above the fray, as they say, and not engage in the negativity and focus on my campaign. But really, I I couldn't believe it, some of the posts and some of the comments that were made from some of the community members. But I also think it's a real testament of the times we're living in, right, John? So I feel like nowadays you're either with me or against me. You're Republican or Democrat. You're left or right. And I think we need to start to get people back to the table. And so when those things happen, when I felt attacked, I didn't engage. What I did is that day I knocked on more doors. That day I wrote more letters. That day I made more phone calls. I tried to do everything I could to focus my energy towards something positive. And I think that uh, reflected on my campaign and ultimately me winning and getting the most votes. And as you mentioned, all the hard work, the door-to-door, staying positive and above the fray on April 2nd, You're successfully elected, and in May, you are sworn in as the first Assyrian Lincoln Wood trustee and the first ever Assyrian woman elected to political office in Illinois. Firstly, congratulations. Secondly, uh, what do you think took so long, not for you personally, of course, but for Assyrians in general, uh, because Assyrians have been in Lincoln Wood for seemingly forever. Yeah, thanks, John. Well, thank you, first of all, and thank you to the residents in Lincolnwood for entrusting me and electing me uh, to this position. But to answer your question, uh, it has taken a long time. It's taken a long time for us to get representation in Lincolnwood and Chicago and the state of Illinois nationwide. And I think if I can look particularly at the times, so if I can just go back to the times like my parents, and so, and I think that a large influx of Assyrian immigrants came into the country and to the United States. I think my parents came in the late 70s and their focus really was on providing, right? Their focus was on providing for their family, not just their family, our families back home who were going through the first Gulf War at that time in the early 90s and, you know, making sure that we were taken care of, but also we were providing and helping those families that relied on us, the one family who's in America to help support. And so I feel like the focus of a lot of Assyrians at that time was just like staying afloat, staying alive. And I think times have definitely changed. I think we're seeing it now. There's a push for our communities to get more representation. We're starting to see more community organizing, community activism. But I also think it stems from a fear of like participation in government, right? Coming from countries where, you know, you were scared to participate. There were you could get in trouble for voting the wrong way or your vote didn't really count, right? So they were like, what's the point of us participating in government? And I think that's also starting to change. And a lot of that stems from education and educating the community on the importance of voting and why their votes count, especially at the local level. I think it takes time, but I also think to, to a certain extent growing up, you know, there was a lack of unity amongst Assyrian organizations, right? That lack of connecting with one another and not drawing differences on what churches you go to or what tribe you're part of. And I think, again, I give credit to the younger generation. We're starting to see a shift and a change. And I hope we see more of that. And I'm actually going to touch on that in a little bit as far as uh, Assyrians doing a better job of uh, encouraging people to run, helping them Uh, on election day and throughout early voting. But before we get uh, into those specifics, I want to get back to the election uh, that you won. According to the Chicago Tribune, 
you won 1,435 votes, which was more than the actual mayor of Lincolnwood received. Uh, how huge was the Assyrian community specifically in coming through with those votes? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question, John. So first I want to add, there's a funny statistic, and I haven't looked it up myself, so I can't be for sure, but one of my colleagues told me that I got the most votes in Lincolnwood since 1970. And I think that's a true testament to the work I did and to the residents of Lincolnwood entrusting me, but I also know that the Assyrian community had a huge impact on my election. And I know that because it was part of my plan in campaigning and getting elected. Yes, uh, the Lincolnwood residents, there's the door to door, there's the knocking, but I wanted to see if the Assyrian community could have an impact on my election. And so I put together a plan and my plan was pretty grassroots and pretty simple where, you know, I pulled a voter file and I pulled every single Assyrian name that could or might be Assyrian. I broke those names down into precincts and through my volunteers and friends, you know, it was like we had this two-pronged approach to my election is to focus on the Lincolnwood residents. There is research that shows that, you know, you want to focus on the people that, you know, vote in every election and every municipal election. So you're not randomly knocking on every door, but more focused on the people that, you know, come out. But the second approach was to see kind of what impact the Assyrian community could have. And so as part of this plan, we went through the lists, we updated the lists, we knocked on those doors, we talked to our Assyrian community members, many of which I already knew personally, who were very excited to get behind me and volunteered for my campaign. Every Saturday was my Assyrian campaign day and my house would be full with my volunteers and we would focus specifically on finding out how many Assyrians we have and if we knock on a door and there's one Assyrian there, are you all registered? You know, but there are four people who live there. Are you all registered to vote? We made sure we registered people to vote. And then we really focused on the early vote. We, there were two weeks before election day where we said, we're not waiting for election day. Please, we want you to come out and vote. And so if we had to drive people to the polls, we, we did. And they had a really significant impact. And based on some work I have to do and kind of go through my data, approximately, I want to say between 300 and 350 of those votes were Assyrian people. Again, we don't know how they voted. My assumption is they voted for me, but I think it's a fair assumption to make. And I think they really had a significant impact. And I want to say not just the Assyrian community in Lincolnwood, John, but, you know, the Assyrian churches, the Assyrian organizations of Chicago, from Mitzwa, Shotaputa, I mean, all of them, the Assyrian radio stations, they let me play ads over the air over and over again. There were I felt so much support from my Assyrian community and I'm very thankful and appreciative to that. But I also think it's a testament to the amount of work that I've done, but also my father who's been active his entire life. So if we knocked on a door and I didn't know the Assyrian personally, my dad would for sure know them. And again, I mentioned I'm one of three sisters. One of my sisters is the president of the Assyrian Athletic Club. The other also serves on the Athletic Club board. And so we just naturally are active. So we know a lot of people in the community. So I think that also helped out a lot. Yeah, I think you do make an important distinction there where it's it's not just kind of blind Assyrian loyalty voting. It's you went out there and made sure people knew that you were on the ballot and what you were all about. Because otherwise, I could easily see a number of people uh, hearing like, oh, did you hear there's an Assyrian running for you know village board? And then just kind of waving it off and thinking, ah, yeah, I don't know who that is. Right. Right. <laughs> no, no vote required on my end. Right. Uh, and I got so excited in all this research and, and knowing that you had won your election last year that I completely forgot to look up the term limit. When is the uh, the next time you're up for that seat? That would be 23. 
23. And are there term limits for that? Or can you just keep going for as long as I can as you keep want? going as long as I want. We don't have term limits. So yeah, four years. And generally now kind of getting back into the, the larger picture of Assyrians in politics, how do we as Assyrians uh, do a better job of encouraging our women to run for office specifically? So we as Assyrians really need to move into the future, right? And break through some of those stereotypical gender roles that limit and hold our women back. And so I've worked with Assyrian organizations my entire life that don't, not all of them, but there were times where they didn't always value, you know, or respect a woman's opinion. And sometimes I've actually heard like unacceptable comments by leaders, and I'm doing air quotes, sorry, I know this is a, a podcast, but from our community. And so when those things happen, we really have to do a better job of holding those members of our community accountable and calling them out when, when those things happen. And so how do we expect our women to run for office if members of our own community want to tear them down? And so we do that by encouraging our women and giving them an opportunity to serve, not just in the Assyrian community, but in their corresponding communities, in their neighborhoods, in their cities, in their villages. And we're starting to really see this in a lot of our Assyrian organizations, especially in kind of, again, the student and youth organizations where more women are active, more women are involved. So I think um, it takes time, but we're getting there. And you mentioned doing a lot of grassroots work in your campaign, but, but how do we uh, as a people do a better job of supporting an Assyrian that we find suitable, uh, again, you know, no blind loyalty, uh, once they're on the ballot for whatever office they're running for? Thanks, John. That's a really good question. And I think to a certain extent, you're kind of alluding to something that I agree with, but I think it's really important to note that we don't and we can't really blanket support an Assyrian candidate just because they're Assyrian. So for example, if there's a candidate running for a position against an incumbent that has been good to the Assyrian community or that supports the Assyrian community, or if that candidate can't statistically win that seat, or if that candidate is not qualified for that seat. So yes, we absolutely need more representation. And yes, we absolutely need more seats at the table, but we can't just blanket support any Assyrian. But when we do find someone that we find suitable, and I think this is what I saw as, uh, you know, as a candidate, we can support them by putting the word out, by telling our neighbors and friends outside of the Assyrian community and say, there's this great candidate, they're qualified, they're capable, give them a chance and meet them. And so sometimes it's just about kind of overcoming those initial kind of hesitations, but we advocate for them. We speak up on their behalf. We talk about grassroots campaign. I mean, people, uh, one of my friends, I'll give him a shout out, Ramsan Nissan, um, his dad lives in the neighborhood and he has no political background. I mean, he was out knocking on doors like, I mean, really amazing things. And they were able to do so much. So we have to also overcome that fear of like the unknown, or we don't know how to do this. You know, now we have organizations and members of our community who are advocating at the local and state levels and people can reach out and ask for their help. And we need to work together and build together. And so I think we're starting to see that, but I want to see so much more. And why is it important for Assyrians to vote? especially when many feel like perhaps uh, Assyrian voices are ignored. Let me start with a story, John, if that's okay. Sure. There's an Assyrian resident in Lincolnwood, and he's an older gentleman. And sometimes he'll call me and ask me questions about 
garbage pickup or he had a, a drainage issue in his backyard and so he wanted help. I told him that we have the village has a rebate program so we can offer financial assistance if he's working on things in the back. And so sometimes he'll call me and ask me questions. And I remember one of the last conversations I had, he says, see, and I appreciate that. And I told him, I said, sir, it's my honor. Of course, these services are, were always available to you. It's not like I'm doing, all I'm doing is helping connect you and helping uh, provide and make those kind of uh, connections. But these services were always here. And I'm sorry that you never felt comfortable until now that there's an Assyrian elected to be able to call and ask, but I'm glad that you have and please tell your neighbors and friends that I'm here. But I also think that it's important to vote, period. But it's important to vote because if we want our voices to be heard, you know, we have to offer something. We live in the real, real world and people, I think, don't understand how much the Assyrian vote makes a difference in communities where we have significant populations. So our votes absolutely count. I think that when there's a candidate or someone interested in running, that we want to know what they have to offer and they want to know what we have to offer for them. And so for us, it's important to see where they stand on certain issues that impact the Syrian community, but also for them, we can offer that vote. We can say that we have a large community that can get behind you if you're willing to meet X, Y, and Z. You know, we've had these conversations with uh, school board candidates where uh, they want to run in districts where we have significant populations. And we say, we can support you, but here are some of the issues. For example, we want a Syrian top as an accredited course at West and North where approximately 30% of the student students coming into the school are Assyrian, right? We want more diversity in hiring practices. We want to see Assyrian teachers. So these are things we can do. And especially, I know people get so caught up, John, in like the presidential election and Trump versus Biden and people are fighting and killing each over, over the presidential election, which yes, absolutely impacts our lives. But I have to add that these local municipal school board elections, they absolutely impact your day-to-day. -day. I mean, talk about municipal level government. Your property taxes pay for the services that are provided in your community, fire, police, water, all of these different services, right? So the people you're electing will manage that money and have a say in how that money is spent. And so you will see the results of that work firsthand, more so at the municipal level than on the national level. And so I want to remind our Assyrian community that it's important to vote and it's important to understand where that candidate stands on issues and to ask questions. And that's okay. I'm so happy you brought that up because like you mentioned, people do get caught up in the, the presidential race hoopla, which is very important, yeah. but there's a lot of local positions, as you mentioned, that are, are important to our day-to-day -day lives. And one of the things I wanted to mention you, um, you sort of alluded to some of the Assyrian organizations, and I wanted to kind of single out Vote Assyrian as one of those. How crucial have they been in not only getting voters registered, but having voters turn out? I think Vote Assyrian has been really um, crucial in getting that information out. And I think the work that they do, right, really focused on nonpartisan politics, registering people to vote making sure there's information about candidates, hosting candidate forums. These are things that I'm really proud of having been a part of because although, yes, I, I have a party that I support, I also want Assyrians to be, be engaged. And 
that has to come from a more neutral standpoint and bring people in and understand and educate. People ask us all the time, why are you only hosting democratic forums or candidate forums? And we try to tell our community that in these districts that are heavily democratic, we only have demo viable democratic candidates. So at least give them a chance, hear them out, hear if there's something that you might support or you know give them a chance and i think an example of that is our local state senator ron Balam, who i was lucky enough to kind of work on his campaign and get to know i serve on his multicultural advisory board and that's through some campaigning and organizing that i did with him when i met him early on through jan Schakowsky's office and so during this these past six or seven months where our communities have been hit with covid and so many people are struggling one of the things that he did which is the first that i know of is he had a mailer translated into assyrian and he had it sent to his constituents. And as a result of that, Assyrians called the office. And I know this because I had to translate for many of them because many of them didn't speak English. And so their offices would call and I would translate and they asked for help. And John, they needed help with some of the most basic things. They needed groceries. They needed help filing for unemployment. They needed mortgage and rental assistance. And our Senator was able to provide those services to those people and to be able to explain to someone that, you know, that's a democratic senator, but he's able to help us. So just give people a chance and kind of understand the process a little more, because I know what impact he's had on the Assyrian community. My role on his board is to report on issues impacting the Assyrian community, um, helping provide constituent services and put information out to the Assyrian community. So I can see how much he's done in the short time that he's been elected. And so again, we want to get people back to the table and really start to compromise and listen to candidates. And we could see sort of how the chain works there too. We have a, a village board member who's in contact with a, a state senator who then is becoming aware of people's needs and then yeah. is able to do a even better job at what he's supposed to do on a day-to-day -day basis and meet the needs of his constituents. In this case, Assyrian and not Assyrian as oh, well. Oh yeah, that same miller is translated into multiple, multiple languages. But the fact that someone got it in the mail and was like, oh my God, this is in my language. I can call them for help. I think it speaks volumes as the type of person he is, but also I think it's been very beneficial to the Assyrian community. Now dealing with a little bit of the, the hypothetical, okay. uh, do you wish you ran for office sooner or did all the right things happen at just the right time? So I think that I ran for office right when I was supposed to run for office, because I have to tell you, John, I never considered running for public office. Yes, continuing to work to serve my community, maybe work in government behind the scenes, but to be on the forefront was never an option. Growing up, I can tell you from grammar school to high school and college and so on and so forth, I never thought that I would be like a public official. And so I think it happened how it was supposed to happen. The timing just worked out. That's where I was in life. And it just, everything kind of fell into place at that time. And it's really interesting because when you kind of get into this space, you hear people say all the time that there's never a right time to run. And I think that's spot on that, you know, if you're interested, you should get into it, but also not that there's ever a the best time, but there is sometimes an optimal time. And for me, I think it was the optimal time for me to run interjecting a little bit of myself personally into this uh, i i completely 100 percent buy into the idea that there should be more women in office 
but I can never properly articulate why. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping you can do the heavy lifting for me here. Why do we need more women in office? Thanks, John. That's a really great question. And I think I'll go back to some information that I learned as I was running and campaigning, but studies really show that women have to be asked to run, right? In fact, not only do they have to be asked, but they have to be asked multiple times before they consider running. And I think that speaks volumes as to why more women should be in office. I think women are careful with their decision-making. I think they're more empathetic. I think they're running to impact change, not just to run. And so that's my take. It might be too early to ask, or it might be something you want to keep to yourself, and that's totally fine. Uh, but do you have ambitions for running for a larger office down the road? President Arturo Saragón has a terrific <laughs> ring to it. You know, just, just my opinion. No pressure, though. No pressure at all. Thanks, John. So it's interesting because people actually ask me this all the time. Like, what's your next step? Like, what are you going to be doing next? And I have to say that I'm truly humbled by the trust and kind of faith that people have in me. And so I appreciate that. Maybe one day I can do more, but right now my focus is really the village of Lincolnwood and being the best trustee I can. And again, I think I mentioned it, but the residents here entrusted me with this position and my focus is on them and my community here in Lincolnwood. You do also, to remind everybody, have a small Star Wars fan club right in your own home. So that obviously takes a bit of time too. So it does. It does. Can't juggle everything all at once. Yeah, I can't. I mean, the kids have extracurriculars, <laughs> and you know, I still have to. How has that been, as an aside, too? With uh, I, I know they're pretty young, but I'm assuming e-learning is going on with both of them as well. Yes, it's been a challenge to say the least because they're young, right? And so my kindergartner, he needs help with everything. So for the first couple of weeks, I think they called my name about a hundred times a day, which is, you know, understandable. But I think that the teachers of our school district and all teachers, because two of my sisters are actually teachers as well, you have to give them so much credit. And I'm so thankful and appreciative because they are juggling it all and they're trying to do their best. And I think we're all just trying to come together right now during this really difficult time and figure out ways to make it. But my kids are so happy. They, they say they love being at home and they, I'm afraid they're never going to want to go back to school. <laughs> I don't know. So it's been good. And last, but certainly not least, uh, you're probably already used to this. You're going to get used to this more in your political career, except this time you'll have the guarantee that uh, no one interrupts you or cuts you off. You have open time to speak to our global audience of Assyrians. The floor is yours. Thank you, John. First, you know, I really want to thank you and the Assyrian podcast for having me today. It's really such an honor and pleasure to share a little bit about my life and my experiences with the listeners and your fan base. But I'd like to use this time a little bit to speak to the Syrian community, but especially the Assyrian women who may be listening. Assyrian women have contributed so much so much to significant projects and organizations throughout the Assyrian community. And I think it's time that they really serve at the forefront and not behind the scenes, not just in the Assyrian community, but in their neighborhoods and communities. And I really feel like the time is now. Now is time for our women to be front and center, to take the lead and to show the world what an Assyrian woman can do. I really feel like the sky is the limit. And I want them to, if they think it would be helpful to reach out to me, 
to feel free to reach out to me or other organizations or people in our community that you can speak to. I want to encourage Assyrians to run for office, to think about it, to not only say, yeah, I can do that and I want to run, but to really take the time. And it's a huge commitment. And I talk a little bit about my experience campaigning, but it's only a, a glimpse into the amount of work and hours that you have to put in to successfully run a campaign. And a lot of it comes with knowing what you're getting yourself into, knowing and understanding the position that you're running for. I remember spending a year before I even considered running for office, attending every single board meeting, every board and commission meeting reading all the packets, going through our budgets to really fully understand the scope of the amount of work and commitment I would need to make to fill that position. And I encourage people to do it and to run for office, but to do it knowing what they're getting themselves into. And unless you have anything other specific, I just want to say thank you, John. Absolutely. And uh, if anybody does need to reach out to you or if they just want to follow your career, uh, where's the best place to go for that? Okay, so I, this is really bad. I don't have a trusty Altar Sargon page, which I promise I will work on uh, for those interested in getting into contact with me that way. But I am on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can find me, Altar Sargon, and you can shoot me a message, DM, instant message, however you see fit. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for your service and office and the best of luck to you in all of your future endeavors. I look forward to seeing you pop up elsewhere, bigger and better things to you. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you as always for listening and subscribing. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Nahrin Khoshaba, an independent health mart pharmacist and owner of Bartlett Pharmacy located in Bartlett, Illinois. Bartlett Pharmacy offers free delivery and in-home flu shots. At Bartlett Pharmacy, we know you by your name, not by your refill number. Call us today and we will take care of all your prescription transfers. They can be reached at 630-855-5178 or visit bartlettpharmacy.com.